0: Welcome to the Fit Money Podcast, where we'll discuss something we all need through our entire life, financial literacy, but also asking the tough questions, why aren't students learning it? Financial literacy is more than the math and a behavior we'll need beyond the classroom. So we're learning how we can help students, families, and teachers build a new generation of financially fit students everywhere. On this episode, Fit Money Executive Director Jessica Peltier chats with New York Times bestselling author Tori Dunlap, the founder and CEO of Her First 100K and host of the Financial Feminist podcast. After saving $100,000 by the time she turned 25, Tori set out on a journey to fight financial inequality and build economic opportunity for women, a goal now impacting millions worldwide. On the show, Jessica and Tori discuss the reasons why these financial inequities exist, how we can inspire new investors, and what young entrepreneurs should know about their own financial literacy today for a brighter future tomorrow.
1: Hi, Tori. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you
2: for having me. Excited to be here.
1: Oh, so much so on my end as well. Uh, So we heard your title, uh, but I would really love to hear about your journey and what inspires you so much about entrepreneurship.
2: Yeah. So I graduated college in May of 2016 and I had dual degrees. I had a BS in organizational communication, which is like marketing with less math and then a BA (laughs) in theater. And the plan was to be a marketer. I went into marketing and my nine to five, I was a social media marketer, kind of a communications marketer. And, um, I thought, okay, I am going to scale the corporate ladder. I'm going to be VP of marketing by 30. I'm going to stomp the pavement. I'm going to have a briefcase. I'm going to have a coffee in my hand. I'm going to wear a pencil skirt. And that's how I knew it was a fantasy, as I've never worn a pencil skirt and I hate them. Um, <laughs> but I thought that that was my trajectory was I was going to work my way up the the corporate ladder and and you know hashtag girl boss everywhere, and that was the plan. And I got into my first corporate job, and the you know rose colored goggles came off very quickly when I realized oh I have to make somebody I don't respect rich, and I have mm-hmm. to ask to take. Uh, time off for vacation and oh, I only get 10 days a year. And even if my work's done, I have to sit here and act like I'm still working. Um, And then about six months after I got into that corporate job and graduated college, Donald Trump got elected. And I was 22 and coming into adulthood, but really into womanhood in a very different country than I think a lot of us expected. And I was Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what kind of person I wanted to be. What did I want my life to look like? And I ended up being the friend that everyone was coming to for financial advice and guidance. I had uh, the privilege of a financial education growing up. My parents both didn't grow up with a lot. And so they were really committed to teaching me about money. And I thought that was the case for everybody. I thought everybody knows not to ever spend on credit cards. Everybody knows how to save money. And of course, I realized very quickly when I was the expert among the friend group that that wasn't the case and that in a society and in a world with so much inequality and so much inequity, I don't think we have any sort of equality or equity for any marginalized group, inter- including women, until we have financial equality. And so I started the blog that later became Her First 100K in December of 2016. I was running it as a side hustle. I was working my nine to five in marketing and slowly growing the business on the side. And the Her First 100K origin story was me attempting to save $100,000 at age 25. And it was partly to see you know, the number and see the comma in the bank account. Uh, but it was really the permission slip I needed to quit corporate. It was the amount of money I felt like gave me the runway to, uh, you know, be able to see if I had the wings to be able to take it full time. And so in 2019, I hit that goal, went to Europe to celebrate, got the call for Good Morning America in a pub in London and quit my job three weeks after my interview. And it's been crazy to be an entrepreneur since then. We have 3 million followers. We have the number one business podcast for women about money in the world. I have a New York Times bestselling book called Financial Feminist. It's just been crazy to see the amount of impact we've been able to have. And this journey of entrepreneurship, which was literally born out of the 2016 election mixed with kind of my disillusionment of of corporate life and my mission to be able to do something um, that was, you know, values and mission focused while also, um, you know, improving my own financial prospects at the same time.
1: It's so amazing. What a, what a journey and so many questions that I have. Um, but let's start with, you know, $100,000. That sounds completely unattainable, yeah. unattainable for so many people. Um, but I'm sure now as an inspirational, you know, speaker and author, folks realize, well, if she can do it, you know, there must be some secret sauce. And and where do you tell people to start? So, you know, take us on, you know, your guidance, your your advice to that the the younger you of yeah. okay, I, I wanna I wanna do what you do, where do I begin?
2: I will I will start first by really saying this like if I can do it you can do it too is not a mantra I live by. I worked really really hard to get that 100k. I have a ton of privilege. Um, I you know had that financial education growing up. I graduated college debt free um, because my parents had saved a li- little bit for college and I also worked my way through college and <laughs> I would not have been able to hit that 100k as quickly as I did if I had student debt. And so I do want to acknowledge that anybody listening who's like 100k especially that young, um, that's not that's not for the average person. And I am well aware of that and want to acknowledge that. However, there are parts of my 100K journey that anybody, anybody can emulate. The first is that I automated my savings. I set up an automatic transfer from my checking account to my savings account. We call it, of course, in the personal finance industry, paying yourself first. But if you can set up an automatic transfer, even if it's just $20 a month, that's going to make a huge difference. One, you're starting to save without you having to think about it. And two, it's like building your savings muscle, right? If you can get good at saving, even if it's just with a small amount of money, well, when you are making more money and you do have more financial flexibility, well, you already know how to do that, right? You've already strengthened that muscle. The second thing and I talk about this more in my book is I got really clear on what my values were and where I wanted my money to go. A lot of people assume with my 100k they're like, "Oh, you ate oatmeal and ramen and you never had any fun." And I'm like, "No, I like traveled internationally. I went to Costa Rica. I ate out. I lived in Seattle in a one-bedroom apartment. Like there were there were ways that we could have both. There was ways we could balance that." And the the Biggest thing with spending is you don't have to stop spending money, but I need you to stop spending money on things that don't feel important to you, things that you're lukewarm about, or things that you end up, you know going like, why did I spend my money on that? Why why is that something I spent my money on? So we talk through a whole values-based spending practice in my book of like determining what those values are and figuring out how to find that balance. The third thing is I started investing really early. I opened up my, my Roth IRA when I was 21, 22 and did everything I could to max it every year. And so... Um, you know, the beautiful thing about investing or really, you know, any sort of savings is that you have compound interest, which of course is when your interest earns interest earns interest. So I wasn't just saving like that hundred K was not cash. It was money mm-hmm. I had put into investments and I probably actually had 75 to 80 K, but you know, some of that lifting probably 20 to 30% of that heavy lifting was done by investing in returns or high yield savings account contributions. So if anybody has not started investing, and I know from statistics that especially women wait longer to invest than men or don't invest at all, investing is a huge portion of wealth building, and I would argue the most important part of the personal finance equation that we're not talking about as much as the budgeting and the you know the cutting costs.
1: Do you think a little bit of that kind of short term, long term journey? You know, you mentioned the statistic about women not necessarily you know, thinking about the long-term, you know, why is that? Is that societal or is there something that we can do to, to talk about how, you know, really getting, especially the high yield savings account, my goodness, right, right now you couldn't be better. So how do we really, right. How do we encourage that, you know, thinking about both, you know, short and long-term, especially for women?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to shameless plug, but I literally you know researched for four years and wrote an entire book around like why do know <laughs> why do women not have the same education that men do? Why are women you know so uh, so shamed for their financial choices and they feel so much uh, guilt or fear or judgment around their money? And why is it keeping them from building wealth? And what we realize is that the personal finance equation is about twenty percent your personal choices. circumstances, but no one's talking about it like it is. It's 20% getting your budget together, understanding the stock market, and it's 80% racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, a stagnating federal minimum wage, lack of paid family leave in the country a trillion dollar student debt crisis that has much more of an impact on your day-to-day money than like whether you have a budget together or not. So we control the things we can control. Right. And I think that is, you know, learning about money from people that we trust and that, you know, that can guide us step by step but it's also it has to come from like deep policy change and of course that's not changing overnight. In terms of what we as individuals can do when we're thinking about investing, the biggest thing that I see with women is this fear of getting started. It's actually the number one reason women don't invest is fear. That's fear of making a mistake, fear of losing money, fear of uh you know investing in something that's too risky. And so what happens is this analysis paralysis, right? Where where women do sign up for that Vanguard account or they are like, oh, I think I should sign up for my 401k. But then they get to the point where they have to start picking things. And they're like, there are so many graphs and charts. It's all in jargon. I don't understand. And they just hit the bail button. It's just like bail, 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 bail. And so what happens, of course, is that you're not building wealth and you feel very intimidated to the point where you're not coming back to like re-engage with that. And what I have to remind everybody listening, we think we're either good with a money, we, we think we're either born with the good with money gene or we're not. We think we either are good with money in numbers or we're not. And I want to remind you, I'm a theater major. I majored in theater and marketing. Like, and now I'm a financial expert. I'm a multimillionaire. Like, this isn't about numbers, actually. It's about learning a new skill. And I, if I want to learn a new language or I want to learn to play an instrument or I want to learn how to roller skate, there's going to be a period of time where I'm not good at it. There's going to be a period of time that feels deeply uncomfortable and vulnerable because I'm having to ask people questions. I'm saying the word toilet when I mean to ask for, you know, a croissant or something, right? Like, there's so many moments when we're learning something new where we're like, this is scary, I'm uncomfortable, and I don't want to do this anymore. But the key with money, just like any other skill, is getting comfortable being uncomfortable and also understanding that it is not your fault that you don't know this. Unless somebody taught you, like parents for me or you know, a teacher or a coworker sitting you down and explaining what the 401k is, unless somebody taught you, no one taught you. So have so much grace and understanding for yourself, but also find somebody who can teach you. Find somebody, whether that's me or somebody else, who can engage with you and teach you step-by-step how to navigate this.
1: So important. And you're speaking our language. You know, I uh, here at Fit Money, we advocate for learning it as early as kindergarten uh, because everything that you're saying resonates with me. This is behavioral. It's not totally. just math. Uh, it's not just balancing a checkbook or whatnot. Is is making powerful decisions about your now, your tomorrow, and your future. Uh, and and behavioral uh, learning doesn't happen overnight. So I I love um, I love your passion about that. You said that there's you know a lot of mistakes that are that are made in entrepreneurship, and that's part of the game. You know, risk reward means that sometimes you are going to lose. Um, what are some of the more common mistakes? I think we saw. Certainly during the pandemic, I think something that was maybe a good takeaway was that a lot of people started their own businesses. yeah, they realized for whatever reason they you know remote work wasn't working or 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 perhaps they were laid off. But talk about some of the common mistakes that you might have seen made all too frequently that perhaps we can we can get in and and uh, and stop before they continue.
2: Yeah um three biggest mistakes I see with entrepreneurs. One, we were talking about this with investing before, is that people don't actually get started. And I was a victim of this. I had the idea. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. But I thought to myself, I can't tell you the amount of times I thought to myself and the amount of times I hear this from people is they go, well, I need a logo, though. And I don't have a logo that I like. Oh, but I need a brand color. Oh, I need a website. Oh, I need a tagline. Oh, I don't know how to run an Instagram, so I'm not going to do it. And here's the thing. Her first 100K, that was not the concept when I started back in 2016. I look back at graphics or my website that I made back then, and yes, I cringe, which means I've grown, which is great. But like, you have to do it in order to figure it out. You have to start in order to figure out what your brand color should be, what your logo should be, what your audience should be. And you won't know this unless you're doing it and learning as you go. What's happening is you're putting barriers in front of yourself as your excuse to get started, right? Because you're like, oh, I am feeling productive. OK, but I need this thing first and I can't do anything before I have this thing. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert, author of Eat, Pray, Love, Big Magic, she has this great quote that says perfectionism is fear in stilettos. And that's what ha- that's what's happening is you are wanting everything to be perfect because you're afraid. You're afraid of failure. You're afraid of, you know, screwing up. You're afraid that somebody's going to laugh at you. You're afraid you're going to look back in 10 years at that website that looks stupid. But here's the thing is you have to start anyway. And you have to understand it's not going to be perfect. You have to release that and know that, like, OK, I just need to get started in order to keep progressing. Second mistake I see with entrepreneurs is that... Um, especially women entrepreneurs, they think they have to do it all of themselves when they do start gaining that momentum, when they do start feeling like, okay, I got some business coming in and things are going well. And then suddenly they're completely overwhelmed. It shocks a lot of people to know that I actually hired my first person when I still had a nine to five job and Mm. I couldn't afford Anybody for more than like five hours a week, someone who was very entry level, low level, who I, you know, paid probably 10, 15 bucks an hour, but like that was what I could afford then. And they were doing like some graphics for me and social media posting and answering emails. The moment you can outsource, do it, even if it's just Mm -hmm. for a small amount of time. There are good people out there who you need to trust in order to grow your business. And I think it's one of the reasons we've been so successful is I have done as much as I can to hand things off and to be really intentional about who we hire. Um, and those are some of the mistakes I've made as hiring people that, you know, I look back and I'm like, mm. There were red flags in that interview. I shouldn't have hired them, but I will say hiring somebody, even if it you know doesn't end up being a lasting, forever relationship, is so important in terms of growing your business. Um, and finally, I need you to know your numbers. We were talking about math and numbers before. This is actually one of those things though where I do need you to keep track. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be incredibly detailed if you're just getting started, but you need to know what your cash flow is, not only as a business owner, but as an individual. You need to know What are my income sources? What money's coming in every month? What money's going out for my expenses? And it's the same thing personally, right? What money's coming in either through the business, through my side hustle, through my nine to five, through this contract, through this client, and what's going out? What am I paying in rent or my mortgage? What am I paying in daycare? How many, you know, what, what am I paying at the grocery store? So you have to have a general understanding of your numbers, even if you are a right-brained entrepreneur. I love viewing it as a game. Like there's something liberating about viewing your revenue and numbers as a game of, I can't tell you, especially in the early days where I did have directly more control over this, where, you know, I could track and say, oh, you know, there's three days left before the end of the month. We've made $9,500. Let's see if we can do $500 in these last three days. And there's something so liberating about knowing your numbers so intimately to be able to just like say, okay, if I pull this lever, I'm going to be able to make this amount more money. And viewing it as that, as this like fun challenge or game for yourself, allows you to see your numbers as your friend rather than your enemy.
1: I love that. Um, I think the delegation piece is uh, so important. Whenever I'm asked in job interviews, you know, what could I do better? I think delegating is my answer <laughs> because I think it's women so especially, hard. we are just so ingrained to just do it all and do it all really well. So I love that piece of advice, uh, even even for me personally. you Mentioned, I'd love to go back to your parents of how fortunate you were that you had parents who actually talked to you about money, Uh, and you are correct—that is incredibly rare. Uh, Research has shown that parents often will feel more comfortable talking about sex and drugs than they will their financial statements. politics,
2: religion, we'll talk about anything before we'll talk about money.
1: And I have two young boys and I will happily take out my mortgage statement before before we talk about the other things. Um, Why do you think that is? And do you see it changing at all in our culture now that there is so much on social media and we are becoming a much more transparent society, I think, um, do you think it'll change that parents will start to open up a little bit?
2: God, I hope so. I am seeing it change concretely just in general society. Um, I think again, the success of her first hundred K proves that, proves that people are interested in conversations. They're they're being sought out. Um, and a sweet thing that a lot of people say but feels also unfortunate, is so many people in our community have told us oh gosh, just probably thousands at this point, they tell us this is the only place in my life that I feel comfortable and safe having a conversation about money. Not with my friends, not with my family, sometimes not even with their partner. Um, So people want this and they're seeking it out. And I can even just tell in the landscape of, you know, there are more podcasts than ever about money, right? And I think when we launched our podcast, Financial Feminist, in May of 2021, we were the only women-focused, women-hosted show in the top 30 business business podcasts were now one of probably 5 or 10 um even in that you know 2 years so I think that definitely the market is shifting and people are looking for this advice. In terms of parenting, I am not a parent. I can't speak to direct experience. I hope it's happening. I hope those conversations are happening about money. And I hope especially that conversations about money are happening in the same way for children of different genders. Um, If we're using a gender binary between girls and boys, and of course we know that there's genders in between that and all over, but... uh, the conversations that, that parents have with their, their male children are very different than the conversations they have with their girls. Um, the, you know Still in a patriarchal, heteronormative society and relationships, we're seeing that women handle the day-to-day finances, the budgeting, the coupon clipping, right? the, the grocery shopping. Men are handling the wealth building. And this starts in childhood. And I have a section in my book where I talk about this. The toys we give children, even now, are, are very gendered, right? We give boys trucks and Legos and things to build and things to create. And we tell them that their value to society is in their creation and in their ingenuity and in their, you know, self-reliance and critical thinking, what do we give girls we give girls dolls easy bake ovens bridal veils i i think it's crazy that we give 2 and 3 year old children another child to take care of right metaphorically with their dolls so we're telling girls that their contribution is caregiving which is beautiful and altruistic and lovely and and i'm not saying don't but we're not saying the same sorts of conversations or saying the same sorts of things with our boys and so that's even you know before we even start talking about earning or money or an allowance even the toys and the, and the, you know, the skills we're teaching them and how we teach them to, you know, own certain parts of their personality or to develop certain skills is gendered and different. And so my hope is that even before we have a concrete conversation about, you know, money going in, money going out, we're having conversations about how we raise children. um, and especially, you know, with, with gender roles and the gender divide. I think the work that
1: we do, while probably you know, minor on the, the scale of, of entire uh, parenting, hopefully providing parents with those tools, certainly free resources. Like you said, there's podcasts, there's, there's opportunities, there's now fun games, uh, to really just set that level playing field when it comes to understanding money. Um, I always say my definition, which I know is different for everyone, but Financial literacy is about being resilient to things that are often out of your control, just like you said you know with with policy changes that need to happen they aren't happening overnight so understanding how to make those decisions in good times and in bad times and we're certainly seeing that with the economy today so what's next for Tory what's uh what's Tory doing in in ten years or what are the goals for you oh
2: man um The interesting thing is I don't make the like five, 10 year plans anymore. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. such a goal oriented person, but I also find that it drives me a little crazy. Um, If you would have told me, let's say, yeah, five years ago that this is what I would be doing. I probably would have laughed in your face. Like this was not part of the plan. Um, And also, you know, I knew I was capable of all of the things that her first hundred K has done, but also, you know, that wasn't part of the plan. And so, I think that the biggest thing for me personally, and this is cheesy and probably not the answer you were looking for, but it's like the true answer is like, I hope I'm happy, I hope I'm healthy, and I hope I'm making an impact in the world. And like, that feels okay to me. I have accomplished a lot of professional things already in my life. I'm 28 and, you know, I Forbes 30 under 30 and we have a New York Times bestselling book and we have this podcast and uh, we have all of these things to be proud of as a team I'm personally most proud of you know the amount of growth and development I've been able to have the challenges of being an entrepreneur that actually have nothing to do with all of the flashy headline things but everything to do with like navigating team dynamics and running a completely remote team and trying to show up as the best CEO I can and those are the things that I think are really going to be exciting challenges as I move forward in these next couple years um, And so personally I just hope that yeah I'm happy healthy making an impact and professionally, I hope I'm doing the same.
1: I think that's a really fantastic outlook. I like the being happy. I think we forget day to day that that is still a number one goal, I think, for everyone is to just feel satisfied with the choices that you've made and and the resources that you have. Tori, this has been really fun. I've loved getting to know you and your story. And thank you for all that you're doing out there. And uh, I look forward to a long, uh, continued relationship.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us today on the Fit Money Podcast. Whether you're a caregiver, teacher, or student yourself, there's plenty of great K-12 resources to begin or continue your financial literacy journey at fitmoney.org. Visit the show notes for more from today's guests and financial literacy activities for the classroom, at home, or on the go. We'll see you next time, and until then, happy learning, earning, and saving.
2: The Fit Money podcast is presented by Fit Money, the leading K-12 financial literacy curriculum providing free, unbiased financial literacy resources. All opinions, products, and references during the show are not endorsed by Fit Money and are solely opinions of the individual. Fit Money does not claim any responsibility for external resources referenced during the episode. All Fit Money products and episodes are provided for educational purposes and are not professional advice.